This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. The Humanist Report podcast is funded by viewers like you through Patreon and PayPal. To support the show, visit patreon.com forward slash humanist report or become a member at humanistreport.com. Now, enjoy the show. Welcome to the Humanist Report Podcast. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is the 130th edition of the program. Today is January 8th, and before we get into the news, I want to take a moment to thank all of our newest Patreon and PayPal contributors. So this week, we have Adrian Dendecker, Andrew, Carrie, Carol Graham-Baines, Christy Burrell, Foster Petrie, Harold L. Nicole, Jamie Pitts, Kevin Matlock, Christofferson Kakavikos, Nicole, Timothy Shoemaker, and Winkle the Bernie Bro. So thanks so much to all of these kind individuals. If you'd also like to sign up to support the Humanist Report podcast, you could visit humanistreport.com slash support or check out patreon.com forward slash humanist report. So on today's show, Trump gets fact-checked by Jeremy Corbyn when it comes to Britain's national health system. God tells Michelle Bachman not to run for the United States Senate. Joanne Reed tells Joe Kennedy to run for president, essentially. Ajit Pai provides us with laughable evidence that his repeal of net neutrality is now promoting investment. New Jersey's governor is now also enforcing net neutrality through a new executive order. A Democratic think tank teamed up with AT&T to fight net neutrality. Trump's tax cuts aren't trickling down to workers. I'll tell you what's actually happening. Additionally, we'll talk about how easy it was to convince President Donald Trump to open up drilling in the Arctic. A man finally affords to see a doctor after winning the lottery, but unfortunately for him, it was too late. And also, the Democratic Party establishment is still cheating and fighting progressives across the country. We'll talk about their shenanigans and why we should be concerned going forward. So that's all the topics we're going to talk about today in no particular order. Let's go ahead and jump into it because I am very anxious to um, to rip the establishment a new one. <laughs> Hopefully we can do that effectively, but we've got a lot to talk about, so I hope you guys enjoy the show. So lately, we've heard a lot in the mainstream media about just how wonderful Donald Trump's tax reform plan has been for workers, because you see headlines about how companies like uh, Starbucks, Home Depot, AT&T, they're all giving these one-time bonuses to workers as a direct result of tax reform. But contrary to popular belief, this is not a plan that's good for workers. In fact, it is harmful to workers. It raises taxes on average Americans. And everything that we're seeing with regard to how great this is for workers is nothing more than corporate PR. It's bullshit to gin up public support for a policy that Americans know is going to screw them over. As Vice explains, corporate America celebrated tax cuts by laying off workers. Don't let a twisted and dishonest PR scheme by massive companies grateful for Trump's huge Christmas present distort the truth. And according to a recent poll by Reuters, just 2% of workers are reporting that they've gotten a wage increase or a one-time bonus because of this tax reform plan. So the question is, what's happening? Because even though we see these sensationalist headlines, 
it's not trickling down to workers. The wealth is staying at the top. So what are they doing with this money? What are billionaires and multinational corporations now doing since Donald Trump gave them this huge gift? Well, they're using that money to either buy back stock or lay people off. So as Rick Paulus of Vice reports, Trump and his Republican allies want people to think that the bill will be a boost to workers. The passage of the tax cuts was quickly followed by a slew of corporate press releases, more than 70 in all, announcing employee bonuses. Walmart gave eligible associates, meaning longtime workers, a cash bonus of up to $1,000. Apple gave employees $2,500 in restricted stock, and Disney gave $1,000 cash bonus bonuses to 125,000 out of 195,000 employees. In every case, corporations explicitly tied bonuses to the tax cut. Disney actually corrected a press release to emphasize the link. That all added up to a massive PR campaign on behalf of the cuts that elided all of the bill's negative consequences, like the decision by Kleenex maker Kimberly Clark to use its tax windfall to fund a plan that included laying off 5,000 workers. And it's not clear that the cut directly led to bonuses or if the companies just credited Trump in order to garner goodwill from the administration. In AT&T's case, the telecom giant said it had given out $1,000 bonuses because of the tax cuts when actually it was pushed into handing out money by a union representing its workers. I'd love to see how much companies paid out last year compared to this year, said Richard Phillips, senior policy analyst at the Institute of Taxation and Economic Policy or that would have been part of Christmas bonuses that would have been paid either way. If the money isn't going to workers, where is it going? A recent survey of market analysts predicted that most of the tax cut will be used on stock buybacks. One analysis found that 20 corporations have spent $100 billion on stock buybacks since December. So what Donald Trump did is he made the rich richer and the poor poor because... Those tax cuts that are being given to large multinational corporations, I mean, it's not trickling down to workers. It's just not. Corporations are doing what they can to become richer. Those CEOs are trying to fatten their pockets even more. And the article goes into great detail explaining that tax cuts don't actually encourage economic investment. Higher profits do. That's the way the economy works. But I mean, if there's no demand or if some companies think they can actually increase profits by laying off workers and even automating jobs, then that's what they're going to do. And that explains why Harley Davidson cited Trump's tax cut as a reason why they're closing a plant in Kansas City. Now, this announcement came at the same time they announced that they'd be opening a new plant in Thailand. So when billionaires like Bernie Marcus, the co-founder of Home Depot and heads of multinational corporations tell you that you could thank Donald Trump's tax cuts for these one-time bonuses, they're gaslighting you. They're lying to you. They're tying these bonuses to tax cuts in order to improve public opinion of Donald Trump's widely unpopular tax plan. See, what these companies want to do is they want you to support Donald Trump's tax plan, and they want you to think that these tax cuts for them trickle down to you, so that way they have the peasants doing their bidding for them. Since they got a $1,000 bonus from Home Depot, for example, then they might pressure their elected officials to give large corporations uh, more tax cuts, so that way they get more bonuses. But that's not the way that the economy works. If you really care about workers, if these large multinational corporations and billionaires actually cared about workers, do you want to know what they'd be pushing for? They'd be pushing for 
an increase in the minimum wage of $15 and also tie that to inflation, they would be pushing for collective bargaining rights, unionization. They'd be pushing for sick leave, vacation time, maternity and paternity leave, universal daycare. That's what they can do if they really cared about workers. But guess what? They're gaslighting you. They don't care about you at all. They're pretending to care about you because that's what serves their economic interests. They don't care about you. They just want to make sure that they make their company more profitable in spite of the spin that we're seeing. And we don't see the mainstream media really going to great lengths to call out these companies on their bullshit. Corporate PR. This is exactly what corporate PR is. It's propaganda. But why is it that the mainstream media doesn't want to call them on their bullshit? It's simple. These large corporations that benefit from Donald Trump's tax cut, they advertise with mainstream media news shows. How many AT&T ads or Verizon ads have you seen recently? How many Home Depot ads do you see? Do you think CNN is going to want to offend their advertisers by calling out their corporate PR? Of course not. So what we're seeing is propaganda and gaslighting. And I think it's important that we reiterate that trickle-down economics doesn't work. It never has worked in the past and it never will work. It's bullshit. If you want to support workers, there are many things you can do to support workers, but of course they're against those things uh, because they're full of shit. President Donald Trump decided to recently weigh in on a protest that took place in the United Kingdom with regard to their national health system. Now, what Trump tried to do was imply that citizens of the United Kingdom are not satisfied with their universal health care system. And unfortunately for him, he quickly got put in his place by Brits and ended up looking like a jackass. But before we get to his tweet, I actually want to give you the context first as to what's actually going on with respect to the UK's national health system. Because when you understand what's happening, then it really makes Donald Trump's tweet look that much more preposterous. So according to Lynn Jenkins of The Guardian, thousands of people joined a demonstration in London ending at Downing Street on Saturday in protest at what they say is the crisis facing the national health system. Bearing placards with slogans including more staff, more beds, more funds, and saving lives costs money, saving money costs lives, they chanted, keep your hands off our national health system, as they set off from Warren Street at lunchtime. The demonstration called NHS in Crisis, Fix It Now, was organized by the People's Assembly and Health Campaigns together. Clearly, they are telling the conservative government currently in control of parliament right now in the UK that they need to adequately fund their national health system because they're not doing that right now. And besides defunding Britain's national health system, Health Secretary Jeremy Hunt is proposing radical changes that has led to him actually being sued because British citizens are worried that what he's doing now could facilitate partial privatization or maybe even full privatization of portions of Great Britain's healthcare system later on down the line. And they don't want that to happen. They like their national healthcare system and they don't want portions of it to be privatized. They don't want a system that looks more like America's system because they know our system is broken and they know that their system works. They're just simply demanding that the Tories actually 
stop trying to sabotage it and adequately fund it. Now, this is what Jeremy Hunt is doing specifically. So according to BBC, NHS England wants hospitals and other trusts to work closely with general practitioners and social care services to look after more patients in their communities rather than in hospitals. In some areas, these groups are developing into accountable care organizations or ACOs, which will hold contracts to provide services. Critics argue that this could pave the way for privatization of parts of the NHS and that Parliament has not legislated to allow the process to even happen. And Sarah Bosley of The Guardian explains a little bit more as to what's specifically driving dissatisfaction. A small additional survey by the British Medical Association of 422 doctors shows 71% believe access and care has become more difficult for patients over the last 12 months. Among hospital doctors, 65% have vacancies in their department while 48% of general practitioners say there are unfilled posts at their practice. Now, a Labour MP named Dennis Skinner echoed the same concern as the doctors cited in that poll, and basically he's saying that he thinks the reason why the health secretary, Jeremy Hunt, and conservatives are making these radical changes is because, well, they want to open the door to privatization. In the course of this hour, there have been more more questions about hospital closures than almost anything else. Stretching from East Yorkshire, Berwick on his own side, Warwickshire on this side, Bowles over High Peak, Bowles over Hospital and Bakewell in Derbyshire. There's a growing suspicion that what this Secretary of State is up to is to leave them lose all those beds in the hospitals forever so that the private sector can move in and take the lot. That's what's going to happen. So this tactic that we're seeing conservatives in Great Britain use is similar to one that Republicans use in the United States. So the way that they prove government-run programs don't work is by breaking them, they defund them, make sure that they can't do what they're intended to do, and they present all the problems with that particular government agency as evidence that big government is a boogeyman that we should all be worried about. In fact, Republicans complained that President Obama and Democrats weren't doing enough to take care of veterans, but when Bernie Sanders actually proposed a bill that would satisfy their demands, it would increase funding for veterans by $21 billion, give them access to health care and education, guess what happened? Republicans blocked it. Literally every single Republican in the Senate, with the exception of two, Dean Heller and Jeremy Moran, voted down a bill that would actually increase medical funding to veterans. And this is what they had to say about it at the time. I don't think our veterans want uh, their programs to be enhanced if every penny of the money that's going to enhance those programs is added to the debt of the United States of America greatly expand spending without any realistic offset. I think the decision we've got here as we debate this legislation is whether we're going to commit to a promise that's bigger than what our kids can fulfill. It costs more than our kids can afford. My colleague pointed out most of the veterans organizations support this bill. He's, in fact, correct. As far as the bill that the, the chairman has offered here, 
This bill's already been debated, and there are problems with this bill. It is an extensive piece of legislation. It has many good elements in it. It also has a cost issue at a time when our nation owes 18, close to $18 trillion. And that was the reason why so many on my side of the aisle objected to it. And that's why I would object uh, to the motion made here today by, by the senator from Vermont. So when Republicans complained and complained and complained that President Obama and Democrats weren't doing enough to actually give veterans better health care, to better fund the VA, what did they do? They voted against it at the first opportunity they got. And the reason why they voted against it, well, they said, you know, veterans, they care more about the United States debt than their own health care. That's their excuse. Did they raise any objections over the cost of gigantic tax cuts to multinational corporations? They didn't. They just recently voted to give trillions of dollars in tax breaks to billionaires and multinational corporations. But back then, when a vote came up, to increase funding for veterans' healthcare, they said, no, it costs too much. And that's because they're not principled. They don't actually care about veterans because if they voted to fully fund the VA, then they wouldn't be able to argue that government-run healthcare doesn't work. And this is what Dennis Skinner is kind of implying that the Conservative Party is doing in the United Kingdom. British Conservatives are taking a page directly out of the Republican Party's playbook so that way they can say, well, you know, our national health system, it seems to be overburdened. Maybe we should outsource at least some of the services we provide to private companies and then you know that once they outsource some of it, then it's going to be more and they're just going to move closer and closer and closer to an American-based system where not every single person is covered. But British citizens are not stupid. They know exactly what conservatives are trying to do. They see how profitable the healthcare industry is in America. It shouldn't be an industry, by the way. And they're speaking out. They're taking to the streets and they're demanding that conservatives keep their hands off of their national health system. They know that privatization is a slippery slope, hence why they took to the streets and demand that conservatives actually fully fund the national health system. So clearly, when you get the context, they don't want the government to touch it. They want it to just be fully funded because it works. It's worked for them for decades. So you know the story now. You know exactly what's happening. You know why they're taking to the streets. You know why they are dissatisfied with Britain's conservative government. But that didn't stop Donald Trump from commenting in the most idiotic way possible. So he tweeted out, the Democrats are pushing for universal health care while thousands of people are marching in the UK because their universal system is going broke and not working. Democrats want to greatly raise taxes for really bad and non-personal medical care. No thanks. Okay, there are so many things wrong about that tweet. First of all, it's not going broke. It's getting defunded by a conservative government. The same thing that actually Donald Trump wants to do to our national healthcare systems like Medicare. Medicaid. After they passed their tax plan, knowing that that would add trillions of dollars to the debt, Paul Ryan immediately proposed cuts to Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, because they created this problem, this debt crisis, and the way that they were fixing it is by defunding programs that Americans rely on. So to say that Britain's national health system is going broke is factually incorrect and downright idiotic. But let's also not forget that Donald Trump himself 
was arguing for a universal healthcare system of some sort all the way up until he was sworn in. Everybody's got to be covered. This is an unrepublican thing for me to say because a lot of times they say, no, no, the lower 25%, they can't afford private. But universal healthcare. I am going to take care of everybody. I'm, I don't care if it costs me votes or not. Everybody's going to be taken care of much better than they're taken care of now. The uninsured person right. is going to be taken care of. They're going to be How? taken care of. How? I would make a deal with existing hospitals to take care of people. And you know what? This is probably... Make a deal. Who pays for it? The government's going to pay for it, but we're going to save so much money on the other side. In fact, once he was elected, he actually demanded to know why Medicare couldn't be expanded to cover every single American. Throughout his career, he's always been in favor of a universal healthcare system of some sort because it works. It's common sense. Even an idiot like Trump can grasp how important a Medicare for all single payer universal healthcare type system is. But I think the most frustrating part to me and for Brits who saw his tweet was that they were literally marching for the exact opposite reason he cited. But thankfully, I wasn't alone in being pissed off by this tweet because Brits actually defended their national health system. So Labor Party leader Jeremy Corbyn responded to Donald Trump and put him in his place saying, wrong, people were marching because we love our national health system and hate what the Tories are doing to it. Healthcare is a human right. A spokesperson for British Prime Minister Theresa May states the Prime Minister is proud of our national health system that is free at the point of delivery. So that right there is a really important comment. Even though what Theresa May and her government is doing is despicable, she's still saying here our healthcare system is free at the point of delivery. It's universal, meaning people don't die if they can't prove that they have insurance. And do you want to know another person who condemned the idea that universal healthcare is bad? The individual who is currently trying to ruin Britain's national health system, Health Secretary Jeremy Hunt, who tweeted out, I may disagree with claims made on that march, but not one of them wants to live in a system where 28 million people have no cover. NHS may have challenges, but I'm proud to be from the country that invented universal coverage where all get care no matter the size of their bank balance. So, <laughs> needless to say, this backfired tremendously. This blew up in Donald Trump's face because what he was probably hoping conservatives would do from the UK is they'd come to his defense and say, yeah, you know, Donald Trump is right. We have a national health system that just doesn't work. But they didn't. They defended the idea of a national health system. Now, do I really believe them? No, because to say that you support Britain's national health system and you love being from a country that started an, a universal healthcare system, then you would not defund it. You wouldn't fuck with it like the way that Jeremy Hunt is. But he condemned this idea that a universal healthcare system is inherently bad, which is what Donald Trump wants us to think. So to make that tweet, not only is it incredibly ignorant, but it's even below Donald Trump because he knows the benefits of a single payer or universal healthcare system. He knows it. He's just a sellout who's now towing his party's line. And now just for clarification's sake, a universal healthcare system like what Britain has is different from what we're pushing for. We're pushing for a Medicare for all system, a single payer system like Canada's. But either way, all of these systems, no matter how you want to get to it, making sure that healthcare is free at the point of delivery is tremendously import important. And that's what all of these systems would do. So Donald Trump thought that he could swoop in and reframe the situation 
But unfortunately for him, it backfired and it made him look like an idiot. When President Donald Trump was still a candidate, one thing that was really refreshing to see on the Republican side was the way in which he called out his opponents in the Republican Party for being puppets to big business. But now that he is the president, he's proving to be an even bigger puppet than his opponents. And we got perhaps the most glaring example of that with a recent article that demonstrates just how easy he is to manipulate. He has no real core philosophy. He just basically is going with the flow and doing what people tell him. So, Chris D'Angelo of HuffPost reports, President Donald Trump said Thursday that he had little interest in opening Alaska's Arctic National Wildlife Refuge to oil drilling until a friend who's in that world and in that business called and told him Republicans have been trying to do so for decades. It was at that moment, it seems, that it became a competition. After that, I said, oh... Make sure that it's in the tax bill, Trump said during a speech at the GOP congressional retreat in West Virginia. I really didn't care about it, he added. And then when I heard that everybody wanted it, for 40 years they've been trying to get it approved, I said, make sure you don't lose Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. Trump didn't say who first urged him to push for opening the refuge's 1.5 million acre coastal plain, also known as the 1002 area. The GOP tax bill passed in December includes a provision introduced by Senator Lisa Murkowski that requires Interior Secretary Ryan Zink to approve at least two lease sales for drilling, each covering no less than 400,000 acres in the refuge's coastal plain. The region is home to polar bears, moose, and caribou, and has been the subject of a decades-long battle between energy companies and conservationists. So that's all it took. He had no opinion on this particular issue, which I don't know how you don't have an opinion on something like this, but apparently he didn't have an opinion on this, and then he just got a phone call and he said, oh, okay, I should do that. Now, I don't know who it was that called him. I don't know which one of his, quote, friends called him. But I think that we could probably make an educated guess and at least narrow it down. Maybe it was John S. Watson, the CEO of Chevron, a company which donated $525,000 to Trump's inauguration committee and also happens to have a secret drilling site in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. Or perhaps it was executives from BP... ExxonMobil, and maybe Sitco, all of which donated half a million to Donald Trump's inauguration committee each. Or maybe it was his own Secretary of State, Rex Tillerson, who, as we all know, was the former CEO of ExxonMobil. Maybe it was Kelsey Warren, the CEO of Energy Transfer Partners, the company that infamously brutalized Native American protesters who fought against the construction of the Dakota Access Pipeline. Their CEO donated $100,000 to Donald Trump's super PAC and then $250,000 to his inauguration committee. I mean, he could have also gotten a call from executives of many companies. Could have been Valero Energy Corp., Chenier Energy Inc., Anadarko Petroleum Corp., Continental Resources, Southern Co., White Stallion Energy, Next Era Energy Inc., Hess Corp., or Clean Energy California. I mean, all of these companies donated a combined $7 million to Trump's inauguration committee. So, needless to say, if they are giving Donald Trump millions of dollars, not only will he be inclined to pick up the phone when any of them call, but he's going to be inclined to do what they tell him to do because he wants to run for president again in 2020. And if he wants another donation from these companies, 
He's got to make sure that he thoroughly demonstrates that he is willing to do anything they say, that he's willing to jump when they ask, like that. I mean, the level of influence that they have over Donald Trump is really embarrassing. All they have to do is make a really brief phone call to him, and he's willing to grant them a major policy concession that has been the subject of debate and controversy for decades. Like that, he does it quickly. Oh, what's that? You want me to um, open up the Arctic for drilling again? Okay, sure, I didn't really care anyway. If candidate Trump can see into the future and see what a sellout he would become as president, then he would call himself, current Trump, a bigger sellout than his opponents back in the 2016 Republican primary. Because, I mean, he described Marco Rubio, Jeb Bush, all his puppets, and now what is he doing? He's proving to be a bigger puppet than them because... He's such a sellout that he didn't even put puppets of industry in his cabinet. He just appointed people directly from the industry in his cabinet. The CEO of Goldman Sachs, or the president, is now in his administration working for him. That's a criminal company that crashed the economy. But now, they're working for the president. This is what Donald Trump is all about. He is a sellout. He doesn't have a core philosophy. He didn't run to be the president because he felt encouraged to fight for the American people. He thought that he would run and either launch a network off of his presidential campaign or maybe sell a couple million books. He never really expected to be the president, so when he actually got elected, he thought, oh shit, now I actually have to do the job, and I haven't really thought about these complex issues that never affect me, like Arctic drilling, so I'm going to go ahead and just let my donors dictate policy for me. It's pathetic. I mean, Donald Trump is allowing these energy companies who donated millions of dollars to his campaign to steer the ship, to dictate policy. That's so dangerous. With the urgency that climate change has created, they should have zero say over American policy. But that's not the way this works because whoever makes the most money and donates the most to politicians, they get the say. So I mean, this demonstrates exactly why we need campaign finance reform. We have to get money out of politics entirely and publicly fund elections. Otherwise, this type of stuff is gonna happen. If I were to call Donald Trump and influence him or try to influence him on any policy one do you think he'd even answer the phone and two do you think he'd listen to me of course not because guess how much money i donated to donald trump's campaign zero dollars they only care about their donors donald trump is no different it doesn't matter how much he lambasted his opponents during the republican primary he's a puppet Former Congresswoman and current crazy person Michelle Bachman recently spoke with Christian radio host Jan Markle about whether or not she'd be running for the United States Senate. Now, as you'll recall, she contemplated running once she heard that Al Franken would be resigning. However, she made it clear that she would only run if she was able to obtain God's approval. And now we have an update to this story. God told her no. So she's not running. Many were hoping, praying, encouraging you to run for Senator Al Franken's seat. And you've decided not to. That's you're not, you're not going to go back into the swamp. 
Well, I'm not going to run for that office. You're right. I had a lot of people contacting me, people wanting to give me money and be a part of my team to run for a campaign. And this would have immediately overnight turned into a national election. It would have been a big deal. But what I did is I did what I've done on every other Mm -hmm. time I've thought about running. I just took it to the Lord in a very quiet way. I took it before the Lord. I prayed. I tried to have my ears open and hear what God was saying to me. And I considered it for quite a long time from the very first day when Al Franken had announced his resignation from the U.S. Senate, I went before the Lord. And it became very clear to me that I wasn't hearing any call from God to do this. And every time I've run for office before, I've always prayed because it's a significant impact personally and on my family. And so I've always prayed and tried to seek out what God's will for me would be. And each time before, I've had this inner sense that I'm supposed to do this. I'm supposed to run. It doesn't mean a guarantee that I'll win, but all it means is is that that's what I sensed in my spirit that God wanted me to run. I had absolutely no sense from the Lord at all that I was supposed to run this time. So it wasn't like, you know, a big desire of my heart that I would run or I wouldn't run personally. I just had no sense from the Lord that this is something that I should do right now. So I'm not going to do it. This would be a very big undertaking to run for this office. And I would be delighted and happy to do it if I felt like that's what God was calling me to do. I just don't have a sense. And without that sense, I can't do it. Thank God. (laughs) Pun intended. Um, I, yeah, I'm, I'm very relieved that she decided to sit this one out. I'm glad that she didn't hear a voice in her head that told her to run. Because I suspected that, yeah, she's probably going to run because she's opportunistic, she loves attention, and she doesn't care about policy. Well, I I should reiterate, she cares about policy, but she cares more about theocracy. So she wants the United States to look like a Christian version of Iran. So she doesn't have any driving ideology in terms of policy. She's not really on that left-right spectrum. She's all about implementing Christianity, codifying her religion into law, and that's really all she stands for. So the fact that she decided not to run is already a win. It's a victory that liberals of all stripes should celebrate because this is someone who would actually have a good chance of winning. She would automatically have the evangelical vote on lock. She also has name recognition that other Republican primary contenders might not have. So the chance of her winning, I think, I don't know that I would say that they are high, but she's someone who could have actually been elected to the United States Senate. So the fact that she's not running is really good news. I mean, look, we just defeated Roy Moore in 2017. We are now going to have to defeat Joe Arpaio and other Republican lunatics. And that doesn't include neoliberal nightmares that the Democratic Party is trying to shove down our throats. We don't need any more wackadoos or lunatics. We need sane people who actually care about policy to run. So that uh, begs the question, why aren't you running? Yes, you watching this. I know that people, they have this tendency to doubt themselves, and we all do it. I think it's just something that humans are inclined to do. We're all our own biggest critic. But I hear from people all the time, Mike, I'm thinking about running, but I don't know that I would be qualified. Let me put it this way. If you care about policies that are important, that would actually improve the lives of normal Americans, you're qualified. You don't have to have this level of intelligence. You don't have to have money to run. Think about this. Louis Gohmert 
is a U.S. congressman. Still, he was elected multiple times. He's an incumbent congressman. Louis Gohmert, probably the dumbest person ever to be elected to the United States Congress. And look, the bar is super low, so to say that he's the dumbest, that says a lot about Louis Gohmert. But he was elected. So if he decided that he should run, if he thought... If he was confident enough with himself to run, then there's no excuse for anyone else. So if you honestly are even slightly inclined to run and you're progressive, do us all a favor and run because it's it's the only way we're going to take back our country. We can't just sit here and wait for a progressive champion to come along. I mean, of course, we have Bernie Sanders, but we need a lot of different Bernie Sanders. And thankfully, we're getting to this point in American politics where... Yeah, there's a lot of Bernie Sanders-type progressive candidates popping up. We have Amy Vallela, Sarah Smith, Cori Bush, Paula Jean Swearingen, and that's just a couple. There's a lot of really progressive candidates running across the country. So I think it's important that you throw your hat in if you feel confident that you're going to represent the people. That's really the only requirement. We live in a representative republic, technically. So all you have to do is represent the people. That's the minimum requirement. So you don't have to have a huge IQ. You don't have to have an IQ or you don't have to have a degree from Harvard. All you have to do is run with the intent to represent the people. And I think that you should do it. So getting back to Michelle Bachman, I'm really happy about this. I just hope that she doesn't change her mind and think that she gets a sign from God or something. Please, just enjoy your life, Michelle. You are rich. You have a lovely life, I'm sure. Just retire. Go back to your gay husband and buy a yacht, sail off. Leave us sane humans alone. We don't need you in the United States Congress. So, I want to take a moment to revisit one of the arguments FCC Chairman Ajit Pai made prior to the repeal of net neutrality. So, the way that he justified the repeal was by arguing that Title II net neutrality protections that were passed in 2015, that actually hurt and discouraged broadband investment. Now, the problem is that he never presented us with evidence that that was in fact the case because net neutrality has no impact on investment. In fact, since those rules were put into place, most internet service providers actually increased investment. Now, that's not necessarily because of net neutrality, but it just goes to show you that net neutrality didn't hurt investment which is what he's arguing. So now, to make sure that he proves us liberals wrong, he's providing us with evidence that his repeal of net neutrality is now finally starting to encourage investment once again, as if it ever stopped. But the evidence he's citing is so laughable, I don't know how he can even submit this for the public to see with a straight face, because it's just a joke, and it makes him look like a fool. So, John Brodkin of Ars Technica reports, Ajit Pai had a dilemma when overseeing the creation of the Federal Communications Commission's new broadband deployment report. Anyone who is familiar with the FCC chairman's rhetoric over the past few years could make two safe predictions about this report. The report would conclude that broadband deployment in the United States is going just fine, and that the repeal of net neutrality rule is largely responsible for any new broadband deployment. But the FCC's actual data, based on the extensive form data submissions internet service providers must make on a regular basis, only covers broadband deployments through December of 2016. Pai wasn't elevated from commissioner to chairman until January of 2017, and he didn't lead the vote to repeal net neutrality rules until December of 2017. And technically, those 
those rules are still on the books because the repeal won't take effect for at least another two months. The timing means that it would be impossible for Pi to present evidence today that broadband deployment is increasing as a result of the net neutrality repeal. But the report claims that's exactly what happened anyway and says that future data will bear that out. To support its argument, the report claims that broadband deployment projects that were started during the Obama administration were somehow caused by Pi's deregulatory policies. That's incredibly embarrassing. Do you understand what is happening here? He is citing investments that were made, basically projects that were initiated when we still had net neutrality before he was even the FCC chairman. He's citing those investments as evidence that his plan to repeal net neutrality is working and again, it still hasn't even gone into effect. And even when it goes into effect, it's being challenged now in the courts. Uh, you have states that are challenging it. You have governors that are challenging it. So he's doing two things here. First of all, he's trying to take credit for investment that was initiated prior to him being promoted to chairman. And he's also trying to cite those investments as evidence that him repealing net neutrality worked. <laughs> you are really dumb. For real. He is shameless. And I think he did this probably not expecting anyone to pick up on it, but we're watching him like a hawk because we know he wants to ruin the internet. So any little thing he does, we're going to be aware of it. And yet he did this anyway. So John Brodkin continues here, as evidence of the beneficial effects of Pi's policies, the FCC says that the marketplace is already responding to the more deployment-friendly regulatory environment now in place. The FCC then provides two sentences worth of evidence for this claim. They say, quote, for instance, several companies, including AT&T, Verizon, Frontier, and Alaska Communications, either commenced or announced new deployment in 2017, the report concludes. These new deployments are initial indicators that deployment is likely to accelerate again in part due to our recent efforts. Why are those companies increasing broadband deployment? According to the FCC, one of the main reasons was the commission's decision to repeal net neutrality rules and eliminate the classification of ISPs as common carriers. For evidence that this was what caused broadband progress to improve, the FCC simply cites its own repeal order from December of 2017, which said that deregulating internet service would encourage broadband investment and innovation, furthering our goal of making broadband available to all Americans. Three of these four deployments were planned during the Obama administration, and two were funded directly by the FCC before Pi was the chair. All four came from internet service providers that had announced broadband expansions before Pi took over with the net neutrality rules in place. So clearly, <laughs> repealing net neutrality had zero impact on any of these internet service providers decision to increase investment and these companies have stated that title II net neutrality did not harm investment because in meetings with shareholders who they are not able to mislead it's actually illegal for them to mislead shareholders they said no we don't think this is going to hurt our revenue uh, it's not going to hurt our bottom line and yeah we're still going to invest and his evidence is basically saying, oh, these companies are investing now. And since I'm in office currently, even though they initiated those investments prior to me even becoming chair, it's the repeal of net neutrality. Definitely. That's not how things work. That, that's not how any of this works, Ajit. I don't know what you're talking about. What are you doing? This is making him look so ridiculous. He is so shameless. And to cite himself to cite the FCC's own repeal order as evidence that net neutrality hurt investment is 
Preposterous! It'd be as if I said, well, pigs can fly, and the evidence I'm citing is a quote from myself saying pigs can fly. That's not how this works. That's not how you prove that your policy is working. First of all, you should probably wait until your policy is actually implemented if you want any of us to take you serious, but Ajit Pai is shameless. This is an individual that has embarrassed himself more so than any government official, perhaps... In the last couple of years, I mean, we have a lot of idiots in office. We have, you know, Jeff Sessions, Donald Trump, Louis Gohmert, but Ajit Pai is really going above and beyond to look foolish. But we're onto your bullshit, Ajit Pai, and you can try to shamelessly lie and do propaganda, but nobody's buying what you're selling. So we did catch you here. I know you probably didn't expect us to realize what you were doing, but we know that your repeal of net neutrality didn't have any impact on investment. That's a fact because it hasn't been implemented into law yet. And we also know that the vote in 2015 to codify Title II net neutrality into law also did not have an impact on investment. Why? Because investment has nothing to do with net neutrality. Net neutrality has no influence on investment whatsoever. It just means that the internet will be less free and open if you repeal it. So, I mean, Ajit Pai, he continues to embarrass himself and do things that make him look foolish. And he gives us all the more reason to not take him seriously. What a joke. We've got even more news regarding the fight to save net neutrality. So New Jersey becomes another state that is stepping up to enforce net neutrality. So according to Harper Nydig of The Hill, New Jersey on Monday became the latest state to implement its own net neutrality rules following the Federal Communications Commission's repeal of the Obama-era consumer protections. Governor Phil Murphy signed an executive order prohibiting all internet service providers that do business with the state from blocking, throttling, or favoring web content. We may not agree with everything we see online, but that does not give us a justifiable reason to block the free, uninterrupted, and indiscriminate flow of information, Murphy said in a statement. And it certainly doesn't give certain companies or individuals a right to pay their way to the front of the line. While New Jersey cannot unilaterally regulate net neutrality back into law or cement it as a state regulation, we can exercise our power as a consumer to make our preferences known, he added. Murphy is following the lead of his counterparts in New York and Montana, who are pushing back on the FCC order, which also expressly preempted states from implementing their own net neutrality regulations. The executive orders will likely feature heavily in an upcoming court battle challenging the rollback. Grabir Gruwal, New Jersey's attorney general, also announced on Monday that the state would be the 22nd to join a lawsuit against the FCC. So this is absolutely fantastic news. They're joining the lawsuit and they're also choosing to protect net neutrality indirectly. So as the governor stated, they're not directly banning violations of net neutrality. They're just saying, well, as a consumer, we have a choice and we're choosing to not do business with any internet service providers that choose to violate net neutrality. And I think it's brilliant because I think that they have a more legally sound argument since the FCC did preempt states and basically blocked them from implementing their own net neutrality laws. So this is this is fantastic news. And again, the more governors that sign on and support net neutrality and enforce it via executive order, the better off we'll be and the stronger our legal argument will be in courts. So now we all have to make sure we do our part to make sure that our state 
fights for net neutrality, and our governor does the same thing. So if you're a governor, if you live in New York, Montana, or New Jersey, then call someone else's state. In fact, I'm going to call my governor right now. Her name is Kate Brown. She decided to jump on to the lawsuit. I don't know if that was her decision or uh, the Oregon Attorney General. That's my state. But she has yet to enforce net neutrality via executive order, even though we have signed on to the lawsuit and we're suing the FCC. But she needs to do more. So I'm going to call. Her number is 503 378-4582. And it's late, so I'm probably going to have to leave a message, but better than nothing. Calling the office of Governor Kate Brown. If you are experiencing a health or other life threatening emergency, please hang up and dial 911. Para dejar un mensaje en español, por favor marque el número uno. If you are calling about services or resources related to a state agency, please press two. If you wish to leave a comment for Governor Brown, please press three. To learn about other Thank you for calling. Governor Brown appreciates the many stakeholders and everyday citizens Let's get on with it. in on the issues that matter to them. After the tone, please leave your name, zip code, and a brief comment. Hi, my name is Mike Figueredo. My zip code is 97203. And I'm calling to ask Governor Kate Brown to do what three other governors have done with regard to net neutrality. I want her to enforce net neutrality via executive order because on December 14th of 2017, the FCC voted to repeal net neutrality. And that's awful. It's terrible. So I know that Oregon is one of 22 states now that signed on to the lawsuit, but that's not enough. And so I voted for Governor Kate Brown, and I'm expecting her to represent my interests as a constituent. I want her to unilaterally enforce net neutrality because as governor, she has the power to do that. Now, look, let's be real here. I know that she took a lot of money from Comcast and that tells me that she might not necessarily be representing my interests. So if she doesn't do this, then I don't think I could vote for her again because net neutrality is one of the most important issues to me as a citizen. So please encourage Governor Kate Brown to enforce net neutrality. It's the right thing to do, and it's what Oregon's, Oregonians want to do. We're a liberal state. Oregon wants it. Even Republicans are in favor of this. You really can't make any enemies by doing something like this, except from your donors like Comcast, but it's incredibly popular politically. So uh, please do it. Take care. So please, please, please call your governor. Also call your state representative, your state senator, and show up to city council and ask them to fight for public broadband. It really starts with all of us. We all have a lot more power than we think. I know that right now we're in this political climate that is, it's easy to get demoralized and discouraged, but we do have political power. Our voices can actually make a difference. You just have to not be afraid and just call. I mean, a lot of people speak out and they send me messages saying, Mike, I wish that I had the courage to call like you do. I'll tell you this. It takes zero courage <laughs> to make a phone call. Um, I've, I've made plenty of calls on the show. I mess up so many times. I ramble most of the time. It doesn't matter. As long as you get the point across that you want something, 
that's all that they take down. They don't make a little note saying, well, this person was not eloquent. They don't care about that. All they care is that you communicated a message that's clear. That's that's all they're looking for. There's nothing to worry about. Um, so please do your part and call your governor, call your state representative. We have to take action. Again, I've said this once, I'll say it again. It's really important. If we want net neutrality, if we want to save net neutrality, we have to fight for it. We can't rely on politicians. We have to fight for it. We have to demand that they do, do what we ask because uh, when it comes time for them to get reelected, we're not going to be there for them if they're not here for us now. And we need to make sure that they know that. So last week on the show, I talked about a scandal involving AT&T where they were basically caught red-handed funding fake activism for a phony net neutrality protection law where they had, I don't know if it was bots, basically tweeting at politicians, telling them to not support the CRA resolution to nullify the FCC's vote of net neutrality, which is what we want. They're saying, no, support our bill instead. Now, what they're not saying is that their bill doesn't actually protect net neutrality. The Congressional Review Act, which is what we're all pushing for, that would actually save net neutrality because Congress does have the authority to pass a resolution nullifying the FCC's vote. And that's what we want them to do. But basically, what they did was they funded activism so people would tweet at politicians and say, well, no, 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 we support net neutrality. We need net neut law now and support our bill instead. That was all bullshit. So we learned a little bit more about this scandal and have an update to the story because the plot thickens a little bit. Because, of course, as we could have predicted, AT&T wasn't acting alone. They had an ally, and that ally was a Democratic Party think tank known as the Progressive Policy Institute. Now, before I get to the article here that talks about this, let me just say that it's time that they rename themselves, because if you're pushing for a law that doesn't save net neutrality, if you're trying to prevent us from making progress, you're not a Progressive Policy Institute. You're a Regressive Policy Institute, because there's nothing more regressive than going back on progress we already made with regard to net neutrality. I mean, Title II was a landmark decision because we've been fighting for net neutrality since we had the internet, and finally, that signified a day where we got what we wanted. It was classified as a common carrier under the Communications Act of 1934. We got that. And now you're saying that you don't want that, so you're not progressive at all. You're regressive. You're trying to take us backwards. But getting to the article, Paul Blumenthal of HuffPost reports, a Democratic Party think tank is behind a shadowy social media campaign pressuring Democratic lawmakers to oppose congressional resolutions to bring back net neutrality rules. In the past two weeks, individual Democratic Party lawmakers have received Twitter messages from hundreds of different users urging them to oppose two resolutions that would nullify the Federal Communications Commission's December vote to end net neutrality rules for internet service providers. Democrats, digital companies, and open internet advocates have harshly criticized the FCC's decision. The Twitter messages encouraged lawmakers to drop their support of the resolutions, which were offered under the Congressional Review Act, and to pass a bipartisan net neutrality bill instead, something that does not exist at this moment. But rather than an organic expression of policy preferences by disparate Twitter users, the wave of 
of messages started as an online advertising campaign by the Progressive Policy Institute, a centrist think tank affiliated with the Democratic Party that has consistently opposed net neutrality regulations imposed by the FCC. Lindsay Mark Lewis, executive director of the Progressive Policy Institute, told HuffPost that the advocacy campaign is meant to target pragmatic members of Congress in a pursuit of a real legislative solution to net neutrality. Lewis called the Doyle and Marquis bills nothing but a gesture without a solution. The Progressive Policy Institute has a history of bending over backwards to do whatever large phone and cable companies ask it to do. Tim Carr, a senior director at Free Press, a pro-net neutrality nonprofit group, told HuffPost. Now, a quick point of clarification here. The executive director of the Progressive Policy Institute said that the bills from Doyle and Marquis were, quote, nothing but a gesture without a solution. The opposite is true. I mean, that couldn't be further from the truth. The bills that he's referring to are the actual bills that would nullify the FCC's repeal of net neutrality. So it's the solution we need. It's a bill that Ed Marquis sponsored in the Senate, which now has 50 co-sponsors. And it's a bill that Doyle co-sponsored in the House, which now has 110 the last time I checked. So that's also gaining momentum. So the reason why they're attacking that is because they know that that would actually be a real way to save net neutrality. And conspicuously enough, the Progressive Policy Institute launched this campaign the same time AT&T took out full-page ads talking about how much they supported net neutrality. And the plot thickens even further. Guess who funds the Progressive Policy Institute? The usual suspects who are against net neutrality. We're talking Comcast, Verizon, and, say it with me, AT&T. <laughs> so AT&T, we're learning now, is in cahoots with a, quote, Democratic Party think tank. Well, I don't, I don't get why you call yourself a Democratic Party think tank, because even corporate Democrats in the Senate, like Joe Manchin and Heidi Heitkamp, are on board with the Congressional Review Act. They want to nullify the FCC's vote of net neutrality. Now, let's be honest here. They're sellouts, they're shills, they take money from Comcast and Verizon, but they know that liberals are pissed because Joe Manchin, for example, he voted to reconfirm Ajit Pai as the FCC chairman. So he knows we're extra pissed. He has a really progressive challenger. So he's got to make sure that he at least pretends to care about us. But I mean, the point is that all Democrats are on board with this. And this so-called Democrat think tank is against what the party stands for. So when it comes to the so-called Progressive Policy Institute, we now know everything we need to about them. They are against net neutrality because they're being funded by Verizon, Comcast, and AT&T, who collectively contribute thousands upon thousands of dollars to them. So the way that we fight back against this and give them the middle finger after they're trying to stick it to us is we call our representative and ask them to co-sponsor this bill to nullify the FCC's vote uh, to repeal net neutrality. Ask them to get on board with the resolution, the Congressional Review Act resolution that would nullify the FCC's December 14th vote. That's what we do. We have to fight fire with fire and we have to show them that we're not backing down no matter what. We're not going to just become complacent and after a while we'll forget about the importance of net neutrality. It's not going to happen. And that's a reason why I'm still talking about net neutrality to this day. I know that, it, like, I want to move on. A lot of us have moved on, but we have to keep the pressure on because I really do feel as though we have a chance of winning, and I don't know how we're going to win. Maybe, um, you know, we can repeal 
their repeal of net neutrality with the Congressional, uh, Congressional Review Act, it's a long shot. Maybe we can get it struck down in the courts. I don't know. Maybe the lawsuit that states have lobbed against the FCC, 22 states now, that's going to be the one that sticks. I don't know, but we need to throw everything we can against the wall in order to see what sticks with regard to saving net neutrality, because this is an issue that's just too important to ignore. With just how insane and shamelessly corrupt the Republican Party is, it's really easy to forget that the Democratic Party is also corrupt and they also need to reform. And a couple of articles surfaced this week that really demonstrate why we have to keep the pressure on the Democratic Party. I know that a lot of people feel inclined to just instinctively run towards the Democratic Party and accept them back with open arms, but... We can't do that. We still have to keep the pressure on and demand that they reform. So one bit of news that we got was that the DNC actually named a new interim CEO. And that individual is Mary Beth Cahill. Now, according to DNC Chairman Tom Perez, she's a, quote, seasoned Democratic veteran who brings decades of experience and public service to managing and electing Democrats up and down the ballot. And her goal as interim CEO is to help rebuild the broken Democratic Party. So, that sounds great. The only problem is that we can't buy what she's selling because her history shows that she is a Clinton Democrat who has worked literally for the Clintons. Not only is she a Democratic Party strategist, but she actually was a consultant to Priorities USA, a super PAC that vocally supported Hillary Clinton in 2016. Now, additionally... You all know about the DNC Unity Reform Commission. They voted on reforms, and basically progressives already had to compromise, right? They had to compromise and come to an agreement with Hillary Clinton supporters because they were outnumbered. The DNC Unity Reform Commission was stacked with DNC officials that were appointed by Tom Perez and Hillary Clinton. There were just eight delegates that represented the Bernie wing of the party. So they basically came up with these reforms and they submitted it to the DNC for a final vote. And guess what's happening now? The aggregate DNC, they're stonewalling. They're taking their sweet time. They don't want to vote on these reforms. Even though these reforms aren't sweeping and they could have gone a lot further, they're still dragging their feet, intentionally so, with these reforms. As Stephen Rosenfield of Alternate reports, the grassroots-led Bernie Krat wing wants the reforms adopted as a package without further delay or modifications. In contrast, longtime party officials say the package is moving through a standard process and will next be vetted by the party's Rules and Bylaws Committee. The Rules and Bylaws Committee will decide whether to amend them before presenting them to the full DNC for a vote. On Friday, Our Revolution, the campaign organization created by Sanders campaign leaders, sent out an email launching a campaign and pushing for swift action to adopt the reforms as is. One longtime party leader contacted by Alternate rolled her eyes when hearing about the Bernie Kratz demands, saying the faction was impatient, does not understand the process, and that it's a mistake to turn this effort into an all-or-nothing equation. Now, when it comes to a comment made by Massachusetts Party Vice Chair Debbie Kozakowski, when told about the latest campaign to pressure the DNC, she was blunt. She says, I think they're going to yell and scream, and that's unfortunate because it doesn't get you anywhere, Kozakowski said. So they're condescendingly implying that progressives are throwing tantrums because we don't really understand how the process works and we're impatient with the process, but really, 
what they're trying to do is they are attempting to water down these reforms that were already a compromise for progressives to begin with. As Norm Solomon, a representative of the Bernie wing, states, the whole concept was a negotiated reform package. Once they start breaking the package apart, they're going to slice and dice, and it's going to be a friggin' mess. But make no mistake about it, they're delaying because, of course, they want to vote it down. That's why the Rules and Bylaws Committee is picking it apart. Who do you think's on the Rules and Bylaws Committee? It's all loyalist to Tom Perez. He appointed people like Donna Brazil to the Rules and Bylaws Committee who are actually in bed with the Democratic Party establishment. There's a really important reason as to why Tom Perez purged progressives last year ahead of this reform recommendation. It's because he didn't want anyone like James Zogby who would support this outright. He wanted to make sure that he had his cronies there to pick it apart and water it down. So by the time it's actually adopted, we get basically crumbs. We get nothing. That's what this is about. But that's really all that the National Democratic Party is doing. Of course, they're still hesitant to change. They're still stonewalling. But state parties are also doing their part to make sure that progressives never get power and the establishment stays in power. So as Michael Sonato of The Real News reports, California Democratic Party shields top Democrats from primary challengers. Now, what does he mean when he says that? Well, for example, Stephen Jaffe, the primary challenger to House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi in California's 12th Congressional District, acquired the necessary 20% threshold of signatures to prevent the California Democratic Party from formally endorsing Pelosi. Jaffe acquired signatures from 37 out of 182 eligible delegates and submitted his petition with a $350 fee before the 5 p.m. deadline on January 17th. The California Democratic Party rejected the challenge, later claiming there were 190 eligible delegates and that 38 signatures were needed. Another Democratic Party candidate, Maria Estrada, met the petition requirements to challenge the party's endorsement of House Speaker Anthony Rendon, who represents Assembly District 63. After she filed the petition, which had one more signature than the 10 she was required to receive, letters were sent out from two delegates asking that their signatures be revoked, though no procedure exists to allow signatures to be removed from a petition. Estrada's campaign suspects that Rendon, or his campaign, formally contacted the delegates to pressure them into writing the letters. So, they're moving the goalpost. That's called cheating. They tell Stephen Jaffe, who's a very progressive person, I I've had him on the show, he's a phenomenal candidate, they tell him, well, if you don't want us to officially endorse Nancy Pelosi, then you've got to get 37 signatures. He gets 37 signatures. They say, well, now you've got to get 38. They are absolutely shameless. And can you guess what they're going to say if he gets 38? Well, now you've got to get 39. They're going to make him jump through hoops because they can't follow their own rules and they don't care about their own rules. They just want to make sure that they shield corporate Democrats like Nancy Pelosi and Anthony Rendon from progressive challengers. And when it comes to Maria Estrada challenging Anthony Rendon, this is the guy who campaigned as someone who was in favor of single pair. And what did he do as Speaker of California's House? He unilaterally shelved the bill, made it so that way they can't even debate it. That's what they're doing. This is how the party cheats to make sure the establishment stays in power. But it's not just California. When they don't directly cheat, 
they'll just go to great lengths to run smear campaigns on progressive candidates. We saw what they did with Keith Ellison. He was called an anti-Semite. Now we're seeing a campaign similar to the one that Republicans launched against Obama, now being used by the Democratic Party establishment against the progressive named Abdul Al-Sayed. So Abdul Al-Sayed is running to be Michigan's next governor. He supports a $15 minimum wage. He wants Michigan to have their own single-payer healthcare system. He wants to rebuild the state's crumbling infrastructure. He wants to make colleges free for families earning under $150,000 a year. He wants to legalize marijuana, move towards 100% renewable energy by 2050. He's as progressive as politicians come, and he's an excellent candidate. Now, his opponent is a corporate Democrat named Gretchen Whitmer, and when you look at the issues she supports, you get mostly nothing but platitudes. So, for example, when you see education here, she states that good education is the foundation for the growing economy. And when it comes to healthcare, she states everyone has the right to affordable healthcare. But you see these little learn more links there, and when you click on them, you don't learn much more at all about policies. In fact, you get more platitudes and vague policy commitments. So clearly, Abdul is preferable for progressives uh, in comparison with Whitmer. But I mean, the Democratic Party, they don't really even have to worry about Abdul because... Even though he's a strong primary opponent to Whitmer, she's still leading in the polls by double digits. She already has the advantage, right? But can you guess what they're doing to discredit Abdul? So they launched an all-out birther-like movement to discredit Abdul by questioning if he is even eligible to run for governor at all. So as Zaid Jelani of The Intercept reports, the Michigan Constitution provides that a candidate for governor must have been a registered elector in the state for four years prior to the election. El-Sayed grew up in Metro Detroit. He played high school sports and started medical school at the University of Michigan. He completed his medical education in New York, but returned to Detroit in 2015 after being tapped to lead the Detroit Health Department. While we knew the attacks were coming, we didn't think they would come in the form of insider Democrats using Trump's birther tactics, the campaign said in a statement. The lawyers and Democratic officials interviewed by Bridge, the magazine that published the smear on him, say that his time in New York and the fact that he has a driver's license in that state means he does not meet the basic qualifications for office. Except that the argument they're making is incorrect. It's just the smear. He is qualified to run because he's been a registered voter since 2003. And as the article states, Michigan's constitution mandates that a governor must have been registered in this state, a registered elector in the state for four years prior to the election. Well, he satisfies that requirement. So what's the deal? What's the excuse for Democrats smearing him saying that he's not eligible, basically launching a birther-esque movement against him. Well, this is their excuse. They're saying that they have to launch this brotheresque campaign against Abdul because if he wins the primary, then Republicans might launch a similar brotheresque campaign against him. So they have to defeat him now using the same tactic that Republicans might use in a general. That's seriously the excuse they're using. This is what they do to not only shield Democrats in power, but stop progressives from winning elections. This is someone who would be an incredibly popular governor. You just have to look at his policies. What does Gretchen Whitmer stand for? We don't really know because she doesn't talk about policies. She would be an empty suit there to just do whatever the establishment wants. And of course, they want more puppets. They want people who are going to listen to the donors like Gretchen Whitmer will. 
So, I'm talking about these different stories because we can never lose our sense of outrage and we can never forget just how terrible the Democratic Party is, even though it's easy to do something like that, just forget about their shittiness because of how bad the Republican Party is. We have to keep the pressure on Democrats. We have to constantly demand change from them. And if they're not going to change, then we've got to go elsewhere. And I don't think we should wait for them to change. I think we already need to do everything we can to build up a viable third party, because even if that party doesn't become viable, if candidates from that party, like a Green Party, can't win, well, then that still keeps the Democratic Party in check by threatening their electoral prospects. They don't want a third party candidate spoiling elections. They're not playing fair. We're not getting a fair shake. So we shouldn't be worried about attacking corporate Democrats. I don't know if you guys saw what Joe Manchin did. He basically called on people to not campaign against their opponents. His opponent is a progressive, Paul Jean Swearingen. He's basically saying, hey, I don't want anyone to attack me. Well, we're going to attack you because you've made yourself a target because you're not representing your constituents. You are beholden to large multinational corporations and billionaire donors. So no, we're not going to be quiet. So the Democratic Party thinks that voters are going to run back to them with open arms, and maybe that's the case. But they need to know that progressives will never not be a pain in their ass. We will always be a thorn in their side that will make sure we call them out every time they do something to screw over progressives. So this is completely unacceptable. They should be ashamed of themselves, but they have no shame. They're shamelessly corrupt, and all they're doing at this point is prolonging the inevitable. Progressives will, in fact, take over, and their asses will be kicked out. So they can try to cling to power, but currently, we are grabbing them by the feet, and we're pulling them away, and they're hanging on by their fingernails. They're doing everything they can. They're kicking and screaming, but we will win this fight. We have another really sad anecdotal example that demonstrates just how important Medicare for All is and why we need it as soon as possible. So there was one individual who was not feeling good, but he couldn't see a doctor because he didn't have money. He didn't have insurance. He was self-employed and he just couldn't see a doctor, but his fate changed, and he was finally hopeful for the first time in a long time. So as Cron4 News reports, at the beginning of January, Donald Savastano was one of the luckiest men in New York after he won $1 million on a scratch-off lottery ticket. Weeks later, he was dead from cancer. This is going to change our lives, to tell you the truth, Savastano told WBNG earlier this month after finding out he had won the money. Savastano won the money in New York's Merry Millionaire scratch-off ticket and had said he already had some plans in mind. I'm probably going to get a new truck and, I don't know, probably go on vacation, Savastano said. However, another plan was to seek medical care he couldn't afford before winning the money. He was self-employed. He didn't have insurance. He hadn't been feeling good for a while, I guess. And when he got the money, he went into the doctor, cashier Danielle Scott told WBNG. The news wasn't good. Savastano was diagnosed with stage 4 cancer. On Friday, Savastano died just 23 days after winning the lottery. I was hoping that the money was maybe going to save his life, said Scott. So it was too late. He finally felt hopeful because he had money to see a doctor, but it was too late. He died. So this doesn't happen in countries with Medicare for all and uh, single-payer health care. 
you shouldn't have to win the lottery to finally get in to see a doctor. And who knows if maybe he got to a doctor sooner, it would have saved his life, but maybe it could have prolonged his life. This is why Medicare for All is crucial and why I will never check the box of a politician that does not support Medicare for All explicitly. I don't care about these platitudes about, oh, healthcare is a human right because neoliberal Democrats, they've co-opted some of the language we're using when we talk about Medicare for all. They say healthcare is a right, but I support affordable healthcare or access to affordable healthcare. That's not good enough. People are literally dying because they can't afford to go to the, to the doctor. And this man finally thought that he was going to be able to see a doctor because he won the lottery. I mean, you shouldn't have to win the lottery to see a doctor, but this is happening in the United States of America in 2018. People are dying because they don't have health care. He was self-employed, didn't have health insurance. There should be no person in this country that isn't able to visit a doctor because they don't have money. The thought that someone can't see a doctor if they're sick because they don't have money and they can't afford it, it's immoral, it's unacceptable, and anyone who doesn't find this morally reprehensible, I question their humanity. Because this is, this is not who we are. This is not even anti-American. This is anti-human. As a species, you'd think that we'd care about taking care of one another because of, I don't know, empathy. We know that suffering sucks. None of us want to suffer. So we should all collectively come together to make sure that we do what we can to limit suffering. To make it so that way as few people suffer as possible but we live in a country that is dominated by greed and health insurance industry profits see if we have medicare for all those health insurance industries they'd probably go out of business who would want to pay for a private insurance company when they have medicare for all because in countries with medicare for all systems or universal health care systems they like it it's adequate it's sufficient and now we have here situation where this guy was hopeful for the first time in a long time and it was too late for him you should never have to hope that you can win the lottery in order to see a doctor that it blows my mind it absolutely blows my mind but there are people who read this and think that this is acceptable well you know he should have maybe um Spend his money elsewhere. He should have pulled himself up by his bootstraps. He should have saved to see a doctor. It's easy to say if you're not actually in that predicament or if you were raised with a silver spoon in your mouth, which is what most um, rich politicians will say when you tell them about Medicare for All. Or they'll say, oh, you know, we can't afford this because it, Medicare for All is too expensive. Actually, it's cheaper than our system now. And even if that weren't the case, if Medicare for All was more expensive than our current system... What's your point? We spend more than half of discretionary spending, which makes up about a third of our total budget, discretionary spending, that is. We spend more than half of that on the military, where we kill people, on unnecessary wars. This is embarrassing. As an American, this is so embarrassing. A couple of weeks ago, I talked about how a hospital actually dumped a patient off at a bus stop. She was half naked, literally in a medical gown, incoherent. And she didn't have anywhere to go, but they dropped her off. They discharged her because presumably she didn't have insurance and 
couldn't continue paying to stay overnight. Again, we really have to decide as a country who we're going to be. Are we going to look out for each other or are we going to allow this to continue to happen? So that way people have to hope they can win the lottery to finally see a doctor. I mean, put yourself in this guy's shoes. Imagine finally winning the lottery, how happy you'd be, and then realizing you have stage four cancer. He had brain and lung cancer. And it didn't take much time. He died. It's it's a gut-wrenching story. And it sucks to read this. It's hard to read this, but we can't look away. We can't bask in ignorant bliss even though it's easy to do that we have to address these issues we have to realize that this is happening and we can never lose our sense of outrage so i take it that most of the humanist reports politically astute viewers tuned in to last week's state of the union address the first one for president donald trump and if you really hate yourself then you probably also tuned into the democratic party's response given by none other than rising star quote rising star emphasis on the quotations joe kennedy and as you could have predicted, neoliberals across the country fell immediately in love with him. They were smitten by him, making Harris Kennedy 2020 images and sharing them on Twitter, uh, posting pictures of them together as a sort of dream team. Now, if you are one of the individuals on the Harris Kennedy 2020 or the Joe Kennedy 2020 train, you should probably get off that train immediately because Joe Kennedy barely qualifies as a liberal. Not only is he a trust fund baby and one of the richest members of Congress with an estimated worth of 18 to $43 million, he also has invested in, you guessed it, pharmaceutical companies that rip off American citizens. So he literally has a vested interest in seeing that their profits rise. And they've also donated more than $350,000 to his super PAC over the course of his career and over 50000 in this election cycle alone. Also, his big donors include Bank of America, Bain Capital, Raytheon, among others, with nearly 20% of his overall contributions coming from super PACs. That's all unaccountable dark money. And if his donors didn't give you enough reasons to reject him, then his policies alone should. Because I don't even know why he considers himself a liberal. He's just conservative. Not only is he against the legalization of marijuana, he voted against a law that would protect medical marijuana patients. He supports warrantless spying. He's against Medicare for all. He's against college for all. So when I think of Joe Kennedy, I think of a neoliberal conservative who incorrectly registered as a Democrat when really he belongs in the Republican Party. However, when people like Joanne Reed think of Joe Kennedy, they think, oh, that's presidential material right there because he actually appeared on her show recently. And after they joked around a little bit, he talked about how he wasn't getting much sleep because of um, the new baby that him and his wife just had. She cut to the chase. Joe, when are you running for president? And it was as pathetic as you could possibly imagine. The first question she asked, take a look. You accepted uh, last week one of the most unsought after gigs in politics, and that's giving <laughs> the State of the Union response. It always goes, goes wrong in some way or another. Uh, I think the question on everybody's minds, you having accepted that gig is, are you running for president in 2020? I beg your pardon? Because that wasn't on my mind at all. Giving one speech that is completely bereft of substance, nothing but platitudes, 
That doesn't make someone qualified to run for president. I don't know why you would suggest that that's even a qualification to begin with. And his speech came off as painfully out of touch, but of course Democrats loved him because he spoke directly to dreamers in Spanish. But as congressional candidate Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez pointed out, I know fellow Democrats love to flex Spanish and do the Yo Soy Tim Kaine thing, but this is a bit tone deaf. Dreamers speak English. They've been here since childhood. The whole point is they're American. Yeah. And the fact that that even has to be said makes you really <laughs> feel bad about the state of politics in America. I mean, this isn't Oprah level of pathetic, but this is still pathetic. He obviously is not qualified to run for president because he gave a response to the State of the Union address. He's not qualified because he spoke Spanish. That doesn't make someone qualified. And thankfully, when he responded to Joanne Reed, he shot down the idea that he was interested in running. Uh, <laughs> no, uh, I am not. Um, look, I was honored to have been selected. Um, it was not something I was anticipating or um, expected by any means. Um, but honored that uh, Leader Pelosi and, and um, uh, Senator Schumer thought that um, I might be able to, to put forth a message that um, I think Democrats can get behind. And I've been encouraged by the, um, the, the resonance that the, the words have gotten. Um, and I've learned the tough lesson, too, that um, sometimes less chapstick is more. <laughs> I was going to ask if your wife gave you the business over that. But um, listen, it, the fact that... A lot that of other people did. A lot of people did. A lot of people did. <laughs> so it's a no. Now, he went on to joke about wearing too much chapstick, which I actually thought was drool when I first saw it. Because if you're going to wear chapstick, you put it on your lips. You don't smear it all over your fucking face like he did. But at least it wasn't a tonsil stone, so... Regardless, he said no, but if you thought that Joanne Reed would stop asking about this and move on to the more substantive issues, maybe asking about uh, policy, maybe ask him why he's taking so much money from Big Pharma and has invested his own personal money into Big Pharma, uh, she didn't. She pushed the envelope further, asking him again if he's going to run for president. You also got a lot of, of kudos for, in other, you know, among other things, speaking directly to dreamers, etc. And the fact that the leadership chose you to give that response means that at least some folks in the Democratic Party, in the Democratic world, think of you as a potential leader of the party and a potential candidate. So is it a categorical no on 2020, or is it something that you're at least considering? <laughs> it, it is not something I'm considering. That right there shows you just how desperate mainstream media pundits are to draft as many corporatists neoliberals as they can basically to make sure that bernie sanders is drowned out in the 2020 primary anybody but bernie anybody but a real progressive it just this is just really embarrassing not even for joe kennedy but for joanne reed i mean do you not have any standards really do you, do you know anything about joe kennedy have you done a single google search have you looked at, up his financial contributors how could you even process this idea in your head and then ask it ask if he's gonna run for president i mean it it makes no sense to me but at the end of the day you could put lipstick on a pig or in this case chapstick on a neoliberal and they still don't give a shit about you so no joe kennedy should not run for president and neither should julian castro who also stated that he is definitely interested in running for president uh, no, if you don't actually care about policy, if you're running because you're an opportunist, then you shouldn't run to be president. We need someone who's going to represent us. The last time a neoliberal ran and won the Democratic primary, it wasn't that long ago, if you all remember, she lost to a reality TV show star. So this time, 
If you're going to try to beat Trump, let's actually do it the right way. Do it with policy. But, of course, you know, I don't know what I was expecting from neoliberal corporate Democrats because they're never going to change. Well, that's all I got for you guys today. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Before we leave, I want to take a moment to thank all of our Patreon and PayPal contributors. You guys helped the show not only to survive, but also to thrive. So thank you all so much. Your support is crucial, and I'm never not touched by the level of generosity that I continue to see and the ongoing support from the audience. You guys, you make this all happen. So thank you all so much. Um, if you'd also like to support the show, you can visit patreon.com forward slash humanist report. You could do so through PayPal at humanistreport.com. But look, I just hope you guys enjoyed the episode. Until next time, I hope you guys have a great week. Take care. <laughs>